You don't have to like everything we say. You don't have to listen to us. Oh, yeah, here it comes. Here it comes. You've been asking, so... Yeah, the big booms, man. Russian nuclear weapons. Well, I mean, we should talk about all nuclear powers, probably. Nuclear weapons. This is what we're going to talk about a little bit. We're going to focus a little bit on the tactical side, as in the tactical nuke. What they can kind of do and not do. What the effectiveness would really be if they were used in Ukraine. What's the likelihood that Russia would use them? Or perhaps... Perhaps there's other parties in play that would more likely use them. We'll discuss that because I got reminded this is on the list, but I had to jump it up. Why? I got a message that said, hey, did you hear the president talked about it? Did you see Russians are moving nukes into Belarus? And I respond by saying, yes, I did see that on the news when it was news, which is in June of 2022, 2022. It's not news now. That's old information. That was part of the plan. It's not an escalation. It's actually a response, but that's what we're going to talk about. Why is it happening? What's the importance of it? Let's be a good feeder when we get into the big Ukraine, Finland, Russian story. So Russian nuclear weapons and maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe a theory or two on how that could play out and how to work it in. That's what we're going to talk about right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. All right, let's do better newspapers and start with a retraction because that kind of feeds into this. Or I should say a correction, not a retraction. Let's throw it on front page. Let's not, let's not do the page six thing. This question will come up at this point because although the, by the time you're hearing this, it's a much, much bigger gap, it's actually, I'm recording this um, very close to when I did the first Russian war strategy. A couple things in there. When I, I often... Well, pretty much every show I do, I go back and listen to it at least once. Usually on another platform, I check the sound, see what I said, etc. And there's times where I go, oh, I screwed this up, or oh, I had another, you know, speech thing, or oh, I did this, and oh, that's, it's very rare that it's enough of a big deal I want to correct it, or even redo a whole show, which has happened. But there was times, a couple things were said, and I was like, oh, I know what I'm about to say, I'm about to screw it up, because I remember thinking this, and I was going to go back and clarify, and I didn't do it, I moved on, because... Well, I do better when I do notes, but sometimes I don't do like scripts and read them over. And that's probably part of the reason this happens. So those mistakes happen. So one of the things I pointed out was about the military tactic or so-called tactic anyway, however you want to look at it, where they would retreat, the Russians would retreat, call for peace in the process. So that's true, factually inaccurate in this sense. If you went down to the lowest level, we could probably say it's happened. It's probably happened hundreds of times, but dozens for sure that have definitely made the new made the news. They did not do that every single time. There's a few key points where they did that. 
So this impression I gave, or at least I realized somebody's going to think where I'm like, hey, so when they do this, here's what they're doing. That's not every single time. The other times, those were legit retreats. They were fucking retreating because they were getting their asses handed to them, just like on the invasion. I don't know if, I know it's in a book. I don't know if, how public it is yet, but there's a guy. No matter what happens in this war, the successes Ukraine had early on, especially during the 200,007 front invasion where they tried to penetrate and get into Kiev. You know, Ukraine's response was, here's a bunch of guns. That's all they knew to do. There was a guy, former military officer in the United States, using Twitter, told him how to fight that war. And his tweets became basically their urban warfare manual and did change the game. And so many things are different there. But anyway, that's probably better talked about at another time. But on that battle, they got their asses kicked. Okay, retreat and plan with they're all not the same thing. They left, and that's happened a lot. And in fact, I'm going to go even farther in explaining why I think Russia's winning the war, and I believe that by telling you how they're exactly losing the war, which might sound contradictory. That's really what's happening. You know, and it escapes me now what the second one was. I just totally drew a blank. So hopefully I remember by the end of the show, but I'll, I'll come up with it at some point. This is why I need to make more notes, especially when I do shows like this, like, oh, I need to do this show. So before we get into nukes, a couple of things to point out. There are ways in which we gauge success and failure in war. Now, whether that is on the large international scale or down to the smallest fighting man, there are some things that are generally universal, and by we, it's pretty much anybody in the world. There's a long list of them, but here's some of the classics. Uh, body count. Body count's a good one. Oh my God, there it is. There's the second one. I just remember body count. Thank I, think God I started there. So I had also said before, we, <laughs> let me step back here. I'd also said they'd had, at some point I said something that sounded like or directly was, they'd had the same amount of losses. That's the one I didn't go back and clarify. In the beginning of the war, especially early on before there was really heavy NATO support as far as, you know, providing equipment. When you're looking at the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian citizens fighting Russians and the Russians were, you know, shelling the shit out of places and blowing up places with civilians the way they fight the war. Despite reports at the time of what was going back and forth overall in the long game of the time period, which was overall short, Russians were pretty, I mean, deaths were pretty equitable for both teams. However, at this point, what I failed to clarify, and this will lead right in to where it just was. One of the ways we gauge success or failure is body count. At this point, the reality of the situation is the numerical math on this, no matter what media social falling is. Russian body count, as far as Russian dudes dying in war, have far exceeded the Ukraines. Whether it's the military, civilians, it doesn't matter. You combine them both. Russians' deaths. This is part of the reason why I said those half a million troops were pretty much all going to be replacements. Some were rotators and some were a few so a few extra guys here since we're bringing them in, but mostly replacements. The amount of Russians dead exceed the Ukrainians by, it's in the neighborhood of probably 12, 12 to 15 times the amount. So at a minimum, at this point, for every Ukrainian killed, for whatever reason they're killed, whoever they are, military or not, 12 Russians died. That's the math on that. So clearly, clearly looking at a loss, arguably a lot of our traditional metrics Russians lost a long time ago. Probably should have quit. So some of the other ways we look at it are territory, typically like the front lines. Now, 
I've discussed this before, I think many people have, but you know, a lot of the fighting in the Middle East that we did, War on Terror, wasn't really frontline based once we really got in there. Afghanistan never was really about front lines. I mean, it kind of was at certain points, but really wasn't. Iraq was early on until we took the capital and certainty started. But the war in Ukraine is about front lines, and a lot of traditional wars are. Where's the lines? Where's the maps being drawn? And the gain and loss of territory can count as a success in battle, but overall for the large game of the war. So we hear all the time about, and even now, who's winning this, who's losing that, who got this ground, who got that. There's been cities that have been fought over more than once. In fact, side note, this will go down in history. You should really get the details on this. More of it will come out, but Siege of Madripoor, all the people in that bunker, holy shit. That's going to define that nation. They might lose. Russia might take it over. But the legacy and history of the Ukrainian people... It's like in military history in the United States, we have our crests and we have little things on them based on wars. That's going to be the thing for this war, I think, would be that town. Anyway, so why it goes back and forth, it's one area where Russian arguably has won. They go in and take Luhansk and Oblesk or whatever it's called, the Donbass region, which is what they really wanted, the one thing they had to have because of the amount of people there, which I'll get in that show I've been promising forever that's coming out. Probably we're actually recording it today or tomorrow, but it might be a few days before you hear it. But that's the one where we'll get into the math on that. But arguably the reason why they're winning, despite all the other battles, despite Kiev, losing Kiev, and then deciding, actually deciding, I don't need that, is taking the Donbass and holding it, which Ukraine doesn't want to give them. But before I go further, I say, you want to know how to end this war? Here's what Russia should do, probably won't, at least at the time of this recording. Despite all the different ways they can gain victory and threats that they have, which will come into other podcasts, things we'll talk about today, once they liberated that area, because for them, that's what it is. It's liberation. It's predominantly ethnic Russians. They should have called it quits. Because here's why. It's not really any different than taking Crimea, what they did there. They broke the same rules and agreements. They're not the only ones that broke rules in this war, by the way, but for this point, yes. And then... If Ukraine wants to keep fighting and doing stuff into Russia and into the Donbass, guess what? They become the aggressors that are starting a new war. That's how it would be sold, and a lot of people buy into that. Because the thing is, you don't have to have peace talks. Russia could just say, fuck it, we're done. The war's over. They may look, the war's over. We've got the Donbass. We're pulling out of these areas. We're keeping the Donbass. We're doing this. Stop launching attacks in Russia. Stop blocking your cancer Crimea. Stop launching attacks in the Donbass. Those are our areas. This is over. That's it. And that's going to cause such an international issue that there'll be NATO discussions over it and UN discussions because people won't agree. Not all of them are going to be on the same page, I don't think. And I'm sure they've already had those debates, but it'll happen again. That's what they should do, but they won't. Other ways we gauge, though, are equipment, just like life equipment. Who's losing it? We hear all the time about equipment losses, but it's interesting, too. You take... So when this started, this was asymmetrical warfare. Basically, on one side, you have a formal, trained, technologically advanced military force, usually superior in numbers, in comparison to the opposition. Not in comparison to the United States, in comparison to the opposition. Your opposition is smaller, less technologically advanced, lacking a lot of things, probably inferior in training and equipment. 
and based on how many civilians are part of the overall Ukrainian forces, yes, we could argue this is asymmetrical warfare. Hard to argue now because there's been so many changes. Because what are the things we learned? Right. I honestly don't know on equipment who's really lost more. I would venture to guess based on the numbers of death, the Russians have lost more. And there's other things to support that too, such as they're needing equipment in far greater numbers and far quicker than Ukrainians are. But they, so they had a lot of shit, the Russians. They had a lot of equipment, but it's a lot of old war, Cold War equipment. A lot of it was not maintained in good working order. The people using some of that equipment, especially like trucks and like literally like the trucks and tanks, not well versed in basic maintenance comparison to what our military would be anyway. They lacked the supply lines and logistics and supports to provide support to those situations and help them. I mean, remember early on all these guys, uh, the famous one that happened with the tank, the guy's like, you need a tow? They're like, yeah, okay, we'll tow you back to Russia. Hilarious. You know, they, they had all these issues. They had more stuff, but it was in bad order. They had more soldiers, not as well-trained. Well, not as well-trained as we thought anyway. You know, they had more guns. People aren't training. Then we go to the Ukrainian side. So overall, their forces aren't that well-trained. Why? Because most are, I don't know if it's most, but a great number of their forces are civilians. Now, granted, some of these are reservists. They have had training and get continual training, but a lot of them are civilians. And on that attack in Kiev, they handed out something like, what was it 18,000? Or 180,000. I think it was 18,000 AKs and a couple magazines per person. Got guidance from a guy here in the United States over Twitter, which they followed, and kicked their asses out of there. Right? Why is that important? Because in asymmetrical warfare, you take Vietnam, for example, the Americans in Vietnam. We were technologically advanced. It sure seemed like early on, anyway, we had superior numbers. We had better training, better equipment, better weapons. They had none of that shit. They were carrying fish heads and a little bit of rice in some situations. So, you know, NVA was a little more formally trained. They're getting some support from China and other assets, but they always say we lost the battle. We won the battles and lost the war. But, and a lot of them, they fought in primitive manners where they, not primitive, but old school manners are just sending numbers of things and watching people die. Kind of like the Russians are doing in some ways, maybe. But it was asymmetrical. And despite the political things, some of the ways that they beat us tactically, not in big, I mean, obviously some of the big battles are well known that we lost great amounts in, um, like the Tet Offensive, but a lot of the smaller everyday stuff was superior tactics to what we had, knowing the terrain and adapting to our tactics. That's kind of what the Ukrainians have been doing. They were getting guidance, minimal guidance on things like, hey, cut down all your street signs so they don't know where things are. Yeah, that's smart. Hey, get up on the rooftops, shoot down at them. You know, figure out how to bottleneck them in the areas and attack them this way. Like these are tweets from a dude who, what's it, John Spencer is his name. I follow him, I believe. He's a former colonel, lieutenant colonel, colonel, I think, in the U.S. Army who studied urban warfare. And at some point he's going to start getting in. I, people need to, if you're out there and you happen to listen to the show and don't talk about it, but you're, you've got a platform or a name where you interview people like this, you need to find that dude. I think that'd be a good interview. So anyway, basically in that battle, especially and this happened in other places, but if you look at Kiev, 200,000 Russian troops amassed on the border, 
right? Most of them invade seven different fronts, try to penetrate into Kiev. Ukrainians' response is, here's an AK and a couple mags, don't have enough for everybody, but fight for your country, right? Motivation. A lot more people want to fight than what we thought. Yeah, they had mistakes on the airfields. Some other stuff happened in the airfield. But in the city itself, the reason they got kicked out was beyond just the airfield. Uh, which the Russian military just showed up the airfield, found out like, oh, this this did not go as planned, and then got their asses thrown out of town because of a great number of them were just civilians. A great number of them had no training, very little leadership on the ground, but had superior tactics. Were able to take minimal guidance and turn it into something, make it happen. Asymmetrical, at least that battle was. So there's other metrics that we use. Some of the metrics we use are about support from your own nation. So if you look at 9-11 here in the United States, like was it like 100% of everybody everywhere is like go to war and kill these fuckers? Like that was the goal. And then we really were only a few years, I, we were nowhere near saying this was over. Nobody was even contemplating the idea, I think, of pulling troops out that much. And politicians that were supportive of this running for election were like, well, I didn't really support it or I shouldn't have supported it for these reasons, mostly because it costs us money, which is mostly because that position of what's going to get you reelected, because that's what the civilians are saying. In other words, weak leaders. But that's how they changed. So there's people in Russia that don't support this, but the majority of them do. The majority of the ones that have money and that matter and keep that dude in power. See, the, 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 the reason this helps him, this is one of the new things this kind of happened because like I said, in Vietnam, it used to be said, maybe still is we won the battles, lost the war. <laughs> this could turn out, Ukraine could turn out where Russia says we lost the battles, but we won the war because they're losing a lot of battles. They're losing battles. They shouldn't lose. While there's plenty of things going on, you never hear about. If you really think about what we call their military successes, that you hear about now, granted, most of what, if you're listening to this podcast, you're predominantly getting your information on that war from Western media, which is going to tell the story the way the Western media West wants them to tell it. Just like the Russian media is going to tell the story the way Putin wants it told. Okay. So it's not unbiased and fair by any means, wherever you're hearing about this stuff. And I, you know how many experts or so-called experts or whatever people like me are out there talking about it a lot. But one of the things that typically would happen by now especially in the first few months, the way they were getting hammered. Now, granted, they, they're they only three, four months in when they really had almost complete control of Donbass and then it became official sometime later. But even with that, a long time ago, <laughs> those people should have been like, what the fuck are you doing? And there's not enough of them doing that. He still has their support. One of the things we've learned now is that Putin probably could have Never taken Donbass, got his ass kicked a lot more publicly than people realize, as much as he actually did early on in the war. He could have pulled out. The only thing that really happened was people died on both sides. Nothing changes. No control of anything, no politics, no nothing. And he can't go back into Donbass, we'll say, right? And he could have went back and explained why that was a victory, and they would have believed it. Because he knows how to rally the troops the right people and enough of the right people would have believed it. That's a common conception people have of that man right now. Which is to say that more than likely he'll be able to sell this as a victory. And why is that? Well, it's like the whole Chechnyan thing. I think I, did I mention that on here? Maybe I was talking to David. 
Vladimir Putin is prime minister. He's he has like single digit approval rating. Single digit. Okay, you think any of what no matter what party you're on, political presidents here in the United States have had bad ratings. Single digits. But he's running for president. So he does some false flag attacks to start the Chechnyan war. Right? Whether that war is going to happen or not, he started that shit. Was able to use that to his advantage to rapidly get a approval rating that I think was in the 90s <laughs> and becomes president. This is not a man who gives up and is not afraid to, uh, you know, I don't know, twist the truth a little bit. And he can do things that will get approval. And no, I'm not discussing whether or not I think anything was a false flag in Russia right now. I have not looked too deeply on anything. And the few things I've heard about, I don't think are. But uh, I, I didn't look a lot into him, so it very well could turn out to be that way. Another thing that I think makes him winning the war is just seeing how many different things have changed that have dictated a lot of support and how wars are arguably won or lost. So, for example, uh, the, the opposite of that statement was I talked about the wheat thing before, not letting those ships out of port. He probably could have won the war right there, but he wasn't willing to take the risk of what would happen that would probably get people killed, even if they gave up, gave him everything he wanted, even the whole country, which is not what would happen. But let's say, they, oh, you can have the Donbass, whatever. By the time they corrected that situation, especially with the amount of stuff that was probably rotting or was rotting in those ships, a lot of people would have died anyway. And then while he still could have sold this as a win to his country, he needs to sell it as a win to the world, enough that they don't come fuck with him. So I think that was probably part of the process of deciding why he let that stuff go. But one thing it speaks to is you go to resources in the other way, right? Despite what he did with the pipeline, whether no matter how it got shut down, but when he started rationing that stuff and kept it going, showing a little mercy, as I said, but also forcing NATO to react to his actions. And their reactions are, okay, we're gonna we're gonna provide some corrective measures here. We're gonna ship in some propane and some new heaters and we're gonna get gas this way. We're gonna do a lot of things that carried Europe through winter. The NATO came together and other allied nations of NATO nations came to help with. Probably made him feel and definitely got some people talking like he did things that were arguably bad or potentially bad that made NATO take corrective action. He forced NATO to react and do things and nobody really gets hurt. You know, we didn't do a lot. I'm sure there's plenty of things people can come up with. I mean, 20 years, 21 years, a long time in the war on terror, but just off the top of my head, I don't think there was a lot we did that went that route that forced people to react in ways that were positive. I mean, there was there a couple of things I can surmise, but it he got the he got his enemy to react and do what we would expect, but in a way where he didn't come out like a total asshole because he didn't cut everything off. But he was able to show he could manipulate world events. He manipulated world trade twice from those two actions that shows his possible economic impact. You know, one of the ways we're seeing them now, which makes this all weird, is realizing there's talk, and I'm kind of on board with this, Russia probably isn't the superpower we thought, probably isn't a superpower at all. Now, if you want to call somebody a superpower or call one of the gauges for that, having nuclear weapons of that magnitude and knowing that 
the United States and Russia have the most of them and the most effective capability and delivery systems of anybody. And like China's number three, but they're a distant third. They're like tied with France. And they barely passed France recently in nuclear weapons. That's not even in the same category. You know, if nuclear weapons <laughs> were basketball players, United States and Russia are both Michael Jordan. And then, you know, everybody else is sitting on the bench. But aside from that, there's a lot of superpower aspects they don't have. They fight, they're fighting this war using World War One-style tactics from a mentality of our sovereignty is divine by our military superiority. But what are we learning? Well, training being the big one, but also logistics and maintenance of equipment and effective flow of supplies. They are not a military superpower. This is why I've always said numbers don't mean shit. You know, like China. Yeah, you look at those numbers, they could look intimidating. The amount of military they have, the amount of reserves they have, the amount of equipment they have. I mean, we've learned during COVID when they were building hospitals, and this translates to some of their military actions, how quickly they can build things. But that's, it doesn't even matter. <laughs> because, remember, asymmetrical warfare. One side has superior everything, can get their ass kicked by tactics. Tactics come down to training and proficiency. I don't care how fast a nation can put out rifles and, and tanks. The people aren't trained and can't use them. It don't matter. They're just newer, more expensive targets. And that's one of the things we're finding out with Russia. But those things that are, are affecting them losing battles, the reason I say they win the war are because of these other actions that are happening. They're manipulating world events. The other thing, too, is why people say they've escalated here, been proactive here, they're reacting to things. You know, they... I'll get in more of this in another show, but they went against a lot of things that were agreed upon when they went to Crimea, and I said, hey, we all knew they were going to Ukraine. Thing was, they were already starting to fight in Ukraine. So this comes to escalation. And yes, this I can see the time and realize this could be a longer show than I thought, but it comes to escalation. Well, I said they all these different things I picked in that other episode were not escalation. There are three times I see escalation in this war by Russia. Three times. There's arguably escalation by our side, actually numerous times. But most of the things from Russia have been responses to NATO actions. But there's three specific escalations, one of which at the time of this recording has not even happened yet. In fact, I think it's happening later this, it might have happened, or I think it happens in July. So really only two. So three escalations, and then we'll move into the nuclear subject. Coming up right here next. So now for the escalations as I see them. Start this off, remember, Russia's going in Crimea. That's what, 2014-ish? 2014, I think. And then uh, fighting, which in the further podcast, I'll get into descriptions, rebels, and all this stuff. The fighting starts in Luhansk. Oblast, Donbass region. That's mostly ethnically Russian. That Russia seizes their territory. I mean, they see all Ukraine, though. They get that whole one Russia thing, but they're all about the ethnic Russians. So the escalation in that war that had been ongoing clearly was February 2022, when months of what we now know is in the neighborhood of 200,000 troops amass on Ukraine and Belarus, and roughly 120,000 of them do a seven-front invasion into the country escalating to a nationwide conflict in a very 
I would say, <laughs> there's a lot of good words. I don't know what a good word is. In a very delicate piece of geography on planet Earth, that's, uh, I, I, unless you're just like, that's when the war started. I don't, I don't think how you could argue that's not an escalation. That was the big one, the big escalation. Escalation number two, which again will be in that future podcast, is talking about Finland coming into NATO and why that is important and that's significant. That's really escalation number two. That escalation is from NATO, and you're thinking, but how did that escalate the war? Because the war didn't get any bigger. I will explain that. But it escalated things significantly, which part of the reason why on this show I'm going to talk about nukes to cover information that will be asked from that Finland show if I don't do it now. Escalation number three is not the NATO air exercise in Europe that's going to have 10,000 people and 450 planes. That sounds good, but I mean, we're sending the National Guard. Nothing against the National Guard. It's just active duty war fighters, you know, with it sounds better. People don't appreciate things like Guard in this country because of what their Guard Reserve Forces do or don't do. The escalation actually goes back to Finland again when a smaller air exercise of about 150 planes is happening in the summer. I don't think it's happened at the time of this recording because I'm recording this in the second week of June. That is going to happen in July, I think. That, I think, is the next escalation because it's going to happen. That's why I consider an escalation of tension and events. At best, you could say, if you don't want to call it escalation, I could say it's uh, further pushing that whole Finland into NATO thing. Doesn't mean there couldn't be something else from now. It doesn't mean there couldn't be nukes. Use of nuclear weapons would be escalation. But going to, here's when I heard about it. The president came out and said it was irresponsible to move these nukes into Belarus and whatever else anybody else said. In June of 2022, Russia announced, just like I said, they have announced the troop movements for a year. They announced that they're going to be moving Iskander missiles into Belarus, letting them run those systems, and will be retrofitting them to be used from aircraft platforms. Exactly what came out at the time of re-recording this, which I read the dates wrong. It's not the 12th, it's the 20th. So the third week of June I'm recording this. So... That's been known for a long time. The other thing, too, is you may start hearing more about Kaliningrad again. I mean, it's always there, but you may hear things about nukes there, people talking about nukes there. So a reaction, not an escalation, was Lithuania cut off the flow of supplies into Kaliningrad, which Russia, of course, didn't like. But the nukes there, which are like K-55s or something, I don't think they have Iskanders in Kaliningrad, which if you think Kaliningrad's a town, it's not. You need to look it up on a map. Kalinin, K-A-L-I-N, grad, something like that. It's like Stalingrad, but it's Kaliningrad. It was like back in 2018, they started putting nukes there. Uh, so there's there's some there, and there's been NATO responses based on defense systems, SAM systems, what all the stuff that they do, which if you want to hear more about that, I can. I, I'm not going to go into that much on here. Here I want to talk more about the nuclear reality. I think I've hinted at this before. Many of us, like me, I mean, I was little when the cold war started real young but i remember all this talks about who had more tanks and stuff and hearing politicians like it mattered not understanding it was just an election you know of course we find out later that for as much as they had more stuff than us we find out it wasn't even true and then again low quality equipment lack of training and that was even the cold war but it was a bipolar world as we say it was russia versus the united states and it was all about nukes you know, everybody's got thousands of nukes or something like that back then. Some people would say, it only take two to destroy the world, and this is how big they are. And 
People talk about Zarbamba, 50 megaton. It's no longer the big. There's now a 100 megaton one. Russia also has. That's. Uh, I'll talk about that in the next one, but. <laughs> yeah, we'll save that for the next show. That's from a military standpoint of what that thing can do is pretty, pretty impressive. But we grew up in a time frame when they, there was a movie, I can't remember the name of, I think I've talked about this too on a podcast, but it was about what a nuclear bomb would be like. Like it was a documentary or maybe it was just a film. But it got shown to the president at the time, Ronald Reagan. From that film, he was like, we're going about this all wrong. We need to disarm and get rid of nukes. Just from a movie. And I don't think the movie probably appropriately grasped the situation. But many people live in fear of things a lot of times because they're told to fear it or because they don't understand it. And again, we, we have first world problems in the United States. We go week to week on what matters. Most people care more about social media, who their connections are, who they're influenced, who, who says what, who gives them likes people that might even be fake. And even if they're real in a world of digital life, that shouldn't matter. You know, there are, of course, terrible things that happen in the United States and homeless people and people without food, people without medical. There's all kinds of things here. But overall, we have first world problems. For the vast, 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 vast majority of us, basic needs in life are not an issue. That's why they're called first world problems. So we don't appreciate a lot of these other things. And it also makes it easier because we don't understand things to have short-term reactions to things like this week it's the war, next week it's this. Or when it was COVID, what version of COVID, what was this? Or, oh, like if, you know, who, what's Donald Trump in the news for this week? Or what, the elections are coming, what's what's this? Or we pay less attention to things and we go after these things that are pushed on us because we won't admit that we're told what to believe. And we are. And we react to those things. And it's designed in a way to make us think it's our decision. It's marketing. That's all. It's no different than when you buy stuff online or the stuff you read. It's hook. You know, it's bait. It's whatever. Sure, you identify some of it. Most of it goes unknown. Most of it, too. Some of it's there to feed you to get emotional responses. They give you stuff because they want you to participate in this thing you like more because it gets them something. And then they put stuff in front of you they know makes you mad or angry because they know you interact with it. You know, first world problems. But part of it is the fear and the fear of things like nuclear weapons. While ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, the big ones, are far more destructive and should be feared. Things like tactical nukes, it's not that they're not bad, but we overplay not only their abilities, but how scary they are. And also, if we just get rid of the idea that it's a nuclear weapon, just look at it as a weapon. Most people cannot understand how to use a rifle that don't know anything about guns. You know, they don't understand how those would be used. So why do we listen to the same people tell us about how nukes are used and why they're so powerful or not? You know, like the, uh, what was, oh, so I talk about this show sometimes, Cleared Hot with Andy Stump. He's up in Montana and he was, uh, he's one of the two guys that um, are doing that Black Rifle Coffee outpost up there. So they had a protester he was talking about on the show. This lady was protesting. She was nice and respectful. She's an anti-gun person. He was all about it. He just want to talk to her and make sure he understood. He offered her, you know, water and you could use her bathroom or whatever he did. I think he handled the whole thing correctly. <laughs> this made me laugh, but it was to understand where people are at. 
they get so caught up in their belief systems that they don't even look at actual physics. <laughs> but she was talking about the, uh, it was the AK-47. That was her, that was her thing. She's going after the AK-47. And it was like, <laughs> they will, I can't remember what he said. It was something like, they'll rip your head off. <laughs> they'll decapitate you. And I was just dying. <laughs> and he was like, Listen, I've been on the receiving end of those at 30 feet, and that's not how the game is played. <laughs> She's like, you're one of the lucky ones. And I'm like, holy shit, people believe that stuff. You know, you compare that bullet to a 300 Win Mag. 300 Win Mag's pretty powerful. And he was talking about, yeah, like I, I shot a dude in the head with 300 Win Mag, and it was an ugly hole, but his head was still there. But it, people don't understand things like guns, but they'll also comment on nuclear war. Or even better, people that, using this argument, understand firearms will come on a nuclear war. Something that hasn't happened in their lifetime. Something they weren't trained on or know much about. No idea what it really does, what the capabilities are, where they can go. It, just like when I talked about the missile systems from Iran that were launching stuff over in the Gulf, Djibouti or wherever, I was like, yeah, missiles can go that far, but their guide systems can't. They go like one third of the way. It's like, hey, it's like shooting hoops in the trash can in the room next to you in the middle of the night, you know, when you can't feel anything. So part of it is understanding what these weapons are really capable of and understanding why they wouldn't be used. Here's my position. I've been on this position a long time. I don't think Russia's ever going to use them. There's only one situation where I could see the possibility. I think Kennedy said it. Somebody made a statement. It's far more eloquent than I'll remember to put it because I always screw up these things because I think about them on the fly. But it was basically about nuclear war, and the idea was if you don't give somebody a way out and you really back them in the corner, that's when they're going to use them. I think Putin is the kind of guy that would use them if it was a no-win, total loss situation. Like, I, I mean, I don't know what it'd take, but it takes something like that. He loses Donbass, he loses more people, he's not getting any more equipment, he can't get enough people to fight. Public, The public view of it's going bad, he's losing favor in Russia, people are trying to kill him, or he's going to be ousted. Perhaps the entire nation of Russia is at not we're not saying it, but is legitimately at a threat of no longer existing. And he's going to go out and he's like, I'm taking all you motherfuckers with me. Remember, this guy started the Chechenian war. He's not known for like, yep, you got me. He's not that guy. I think it would take a lot, but I, I think that's, I suppose that's possible. But I, I don't know how, right now I don't see anything that says that outcome's realistic, that we'd, we'd go down the path. But that's probably what it would take for him as an individual but the likelihood of going down that route to get him as an individual to make that decision, I think is unlikely. Still could happen, but I don't think it's going to happen. That's not to say an allied nation wouldn't do it. One of the things is, is like earlier, what I should have mentioned too, is one of the things that gauges our metrics is support from our allies and supporters. I look at a country like Belarus as a Russian ally. They're a lot like Russia, a lot like the old communist nations. They're not a nice place, and you should go read more about them. That's part of the reason why they're doing invasions there, why they're big buddies with them, why they're giving them these missile systems. To, like They're just giving them the nukes, Iskander missiles. Like, here you go. You guys will train and you do it. And it's part of it, of course, a deterrent and a response to actions going on in NATO. But I look at China as a supporter, not an ally. I'm not saying they're not an ally, but in this instance, they're a supporter. They're supporting the war. They're providing them arms and ammunition, that kind of stuff, helping them out that way, supporting them in the public sense, but not providing any direct allied support like Belarus is. And at this point, typically, a lot of people would have backed out. 
despite the time frame, just look at the progress of the war and where Russia had been losing. When it even hinted at times like that, we had entire nations backing out of the global war on terrorism. Some early on, some we can't do it anymore, some it's costing us too much. Didn't matter about the belief, didn't matter what it was. Some of it was political. Countries backing out. Nothing against them for doing it, but that's what they did. But the the people helping Russia, they're not doing it. They're like, oh, well, let's double down and help you some more. That's what they're doing. And it's, it's just crazy to me how some of that's playing out. That's part of the reason why I, th- I think they're winning. Like their allies and supporters want to double down and are going, they might be providing, I, I don't know the math and numbers on the amount of money and debt being built. I mean, I know Ukrainians building far more debt than anybody else. You know, everybody has, well, here's who's helping Russia, here's who's helping Ukraine. Correctly stated, nobody's helping anybody. Everybody's selling people shit. That's what's happening. And Ukraine is going in a ridiculous amount of debt, which is probably by design because if there's enough debt, they can probably be controlled. Because the problem is right now they can't be controlled. Russia can't control them, but I don't know that NATO could control them, even if we wanted to put troops on the ground. I think that's pretty clear with their president, part of being a corrupt nation. But enough debt, they could probably be controlled. We've done it before, so it's probably part of the design. But they're going into massive debt. But... um the amount of support both sides are getting, and, and one of them definitely shouldn't be getting it. That's part of the reason I think they're winning. They're, they're allies are like, let's just keep going. That'd be like, instead of uh, UN countries backing out when we're in a global war on terrorism, and I'm talking like in the first five, six years, like, yeah, we're gonna double down on this. Oh, you're surging 35,000 troops? Oh, I, don't, I don't even have that in my whole military, but I'll give you a 10% increase, 20%, you know, big numbers for them. That was not as common. Now, when we look at nukes, though, one of the things that is more possible is an allied nation like Belarus using a nuke. And I'm not saying that because those missiles are going there. I've known about that missile for a while. What would be more likely would be them walking one in, basically man pack size, something like that. It doesn't have to be that, but it would be more like that. The other thing, too, is it's very unlikely the nukes will be used in Ukraine. Before we get into what they're capable of doing, one of the things are, if you look at the train there, you're looking at a train. You're looking at weather patterns and the way all that stuff, and the weather is so erratic and unpredictable there, especially in the areas, a lot of areas around where people live are close enough to them that something that happens not too far away can affect them dramatically. You look at the spread of troops and where everybody's at in the areas that Russia would probably want to control, especially if they want it all, and also you need to look at resources. You know, if, if a nuke was used, what would go in the water, what would kill agriculture? Because you got to remember, a lot of agriculture there is exported to the world. So you don't want to damage that wheat supply, not to mention the other things that are there like coal and I think coal and iron, coal and iron, whatever it is. You can look it up. All those things come into play when you're using a weapon that can have um, decades of environmental impact. You, nobody knows that better in Russia. They had Chernobyl. I mean, we had Three Mile Island. That was bad too, but they had Chernobyl. They're still seeing effects from that. And while we learn from those things and weapons get honed or improvised, not improvised, but improved, we can more accurately surmise the impacts of what those can have. So granted, tactical nukes aren't as big as ICBMs, but depending on where you use it, here's the risk you run. Erratic weather patterns, we don't know where they're gonna go. The other thing too is depending on the people there, do we really wanna kill the people or do we wanna wanna kill the military? And where's our military? Because we might be sacrificing some of our military, getting them sick and all these other things that are happening, which at this point's a big deal, right? Because we've lost hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, 10 to 14 times that of our enemy. Russia's got to be thinking about this. Now let's look at agriculture and things we control. Even we took over the whole country. 
we need to make money. We make all these money from the exports, but we can't do that if we destroy the soil. We destroy those crops, and it's not like they're going to grow back next year because we already know because we've seen it at Chernobyl what the shit's what's going to happen. Right? There's a whole shit ton of reasons why you don't use nukes, especially in Ukraine. A lot of them. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm saying it's highly unlikely. It makes no sense. There's no military tactical advantage. There really is no advantage to it. However, comma, if Belarus acting independently or would be sold that way, maybe, maybe it wouldn't be, saying it was them, they could take one to a Baltic state. You know, anything northeast of Kaliningrad. Wouldn't have to be there. It could be anywhere else. It'd be Lithuania, wherever. They could go somewhere in Eastern Europe and do it. Now, don't get me wrong. This could start a nuclear war, but here's the thing. Let's say they did it. Let's say Belarus or somebody that's not, that's pro-Russia, but not Russia. Because right, they deal with the nuke. They, it was state-sponsored. They walk into it. They're not going to go to Germany but, or Poland, but they go to a smaller country, Baltic State maybe, something that gets them a little closer to area of the sea over there by Kaliningrad. And they smoke that thing. And let's say it's at a place where, for what nukes can do, it's overall minimal, but it's, it's pretty massive. Yeah, it's going to damage the environment, but let's say in that area the, where the weather is, the way it works, the stuff that's available, agriculture, it's not going to have that big of an impact, but it's going to send a message. So first thing is everybody's going to tell that story wrong and freak out about how bad it is and want people to overreact with nuclear war. Then we have to consider, yeah, attack on one's attack on all, but who was it? We're all going to believe it's Russia, or Russia at least knew about it. But who is it? And then the other thing is, what do you do? Nuke Belarus, if you can prove it's them? Because based on all the things that would happen with the effects of that weapon there, would go into Russia, and Russia could call that attack, and that could kick something off. So the other thing is to say is, mutually assured destruction always gets made fun of in movies. I don't think it's a thing, right? I mean, it's a thing in the sense that, well, you have, you have nukes, but will you have nukes? Okay, but how's that different than you have an army, we have an army, right? Because one of the successes he's had in this war was that invasion. Okay, remember, lost the battles, winning the war. That's how I see it. Got his ass kicked out of Kiev. A lot of those things got destructive, but a lot of things did not go that well, especially in the first few days. And that's a lot of fucking people. <laughs> Look at the numbers that came out of Iraq, which I think at the time was the third largest army when invaded Kuwait. The planet responded, right? Not every country, but it was the United Nations. The planet. Planet Earth population said, fuck no. The majority of modern countries with modern large militaries in World War II and World War I got involved, right? Who responded to 200,000 troops massing for months? Nobody. Who responded when they invaded? Nobody. What did NATO do? Uh, we sent a few troops over there instead of sending them to the Middle East because we're drawn down to do exercise in Poland and some training in Poland and Lithuania. That's what we did. Right? It's been over a year and nukes are getting moved in Belarus. What are we doing? How are we responding militarily? And this is all militarily. Then There's other responses. How are we responding militarily? We're going to do an air show. That's what that shit is. It's an air show. It's a big fucking air show. Now, I know it sounds like I'm being condescending or picking on NATO, but it's, it's to drive home the point that nobody responded. So how's it mutually search destruction just because it's nukes? It's one of the things people don't think about is what happens if nuclear weapons were used. Like, let's take modern countries. Like, let's use India and Pakistan. Those are both nuclear powers. They like to test nukes on each other's borders. They, you know, like the pissing contest with each other. What happens if one of them nukes the other one? They just fucking do it. Nobody else gets involved. They just nuke, kill a bunch of dudes, right? Kill a bunch of people. 
if a lot of that land becomes unusable and that other country picks up the rest of the military and walks in and let's say just go wipe dudes out and say, we're taking this shit over because you fucked our world up, you'd really think anybody's going to get involved and tell them no. You know? There's going to be a lot, like if India had to do that to Pakistan, there'd be a lot said from the Muslim world, of course, it's a Muslim nation, but how much are they really going to do? Or if it went the other way, you know? We're pro-India, but they decide to nuke Pakistan and Pakistan goes in. We'll say some things, but we won't do anything. I don't care who the president is. That's to say, I don't think if Russia and nuclear and America, if they launch nukes at each other, and this is a big thing, like, if obviously I don't think it, we learned it can't go that way now with Russia, but like, let's say Russia nuked us. Like, not, you know, Poland, like the United States. Just go with me on this. They go after the United States, nuke us. They launch one, like, you know, somewhere good, Los Angeles, right? New York, one of our bigger cities, maybe D.C. Just one. Maybe they're nice and they just launch that fucker over Iowa, right? Which sucks if you're in Iowa, but less loss of life. Destroys, kills people, but destroys agriculture, trading, does all these other things. There's, you know, all these things we need. And we're like, you know what? Fuck you. We're not responding with nukes. They're freaking out. They're in bunkers saying, nope, nope. We load up on planes, we go over there and we invade and we're like, fuck you, we're taking over. And how do you take over in a nation like that? Well, we've kind of found out they're not as powerful as they thought. We probably do what they try to do in Kiev. Fact is, if in Kiev, if they'd have been able to kick that door down and remove the president, they wouldn't have to kill him. They wouldn't have to arrest him. They just tell him he's fucking fired. They could raise the flag. They'd have won the war. That's how wars work these days. So we could fly over to Moscow, kick down the fucking door. Yeah, some people would die, but it'd go quick. Like, yep. Do you really think anybody would want to try to stop us? This is part of the reason why I don't think the mutually search destruction thing is as viable as an argument as we used to understand it to be. In fact, I often wonder if it's an argument we use to calm down the populace to make them think, I know this looks bad and sounds bad. You don't have to worry about it. You know why? Because if they do it to us, we're going to do it to them and they don't want that. That's like saying, why not just launch it on yourself? Nobody wants that. Look at all these bad effects. Again. I think it seems like that was meant to calm people down when it meant no sense. Kind of like, <laughs> if you know what I'm thinking, something happened a couple years ago. Now check this out. For those of you who were, anybody out there, you've even heard of anybody reacting to the missiles being moved. Here's an article from June 2022. And this is on the Russia-Ukraine war. And because I screenshot it, I don't remember. I think it's BBC, but I could be wrong on that. Here's near the end of the articles. They talk about several things. At Saturday's televised meeting with Mr. Lukashenko in St. Petersburg, Mr. Putin said, we have made a decision. Within the next few months, we will hand over to Belarus, hand over. We will hand over to Belarus the Iskander M tactical missile systems. He said all the details of the transfer will be worked out in the Ministries of Defense of the two countries. So it took him about a year. Iskander missiles have already been deployed in Kaliningrad, a small Russian Baltic enclave between NATO members, Lithuania and Poland. They're already there. So K-55s were probably there. Whatever. That's what's there now. The Belarusian leader said Lithuania's move was a sort of declaration. What was that? Oh, the two presidents also discussed Lithuania's decision to prevent some goods being transported to and from Kaliningrad. That happened back in the summer last year. Um, so anyway, before we get into the nukes, something else to look at is the sanctions to understand the reactions of Russia and why things 
why this could be impacting things in the world. There's a lot of things we've done as a nation and we've worked with UNNA to do throughout history involving sanctions and money and the effects people have. I mentioned a long time about stuff with the SWIFT banking system could have been more effective, especially on the oligarchs. But I didn't think we were taking it too seriously. But things about the sanctions is understanding how they break down, which a lot of people don't. Like when we froze bank accounts, how big of a deal that was. What we did is, there's a lot of details on how this works out, but these were banks. A lot of these were banks that were Russian banks, Russian, like Russian owned banks, right? But we have money in there, things we can control through this banking system as a nation. So here's what we said. Imagine this is you. So you have a checking account with money in it and you have a credit card that you owe money on. So by freezing your account, because you, you know, for whatever reason, for whatever you did, you can't access your checking account. You can't pay your credit card and you also are not allowed to get a loan. And we did it to every possible place you could probably get money from that you need to go find a buddy that might lend you cash for a while. That's a very short, simple breakdown of these sanctions. Well, we took a world superpower that despite their military capabilities that are lacking as we know now, and no matter what their economic system is, they still have a pretty decent economy. I mean, ours is still the biggest in the world. And looking at everything that's gone on and the pro and con things that we may view them as the West that's happened in Russia, we could have made it worse, but we've almost completely taken down a nation through the banking system. Now we've done this before to other nations. This is part of the reason why 10, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, they're talking about nations wanting to use the Euro and not the dollar. Why our lack of being the predominant currency in world reserve does affect us if it goes away, no matter what part of that ability we have, not just the world reserve, but these things we can do with the banking system, some of them only we can do can destroy a country financially, right? So you might think this is justified and okay, but take a look at other nations. We can do it to a country like that. We can do it to probably anybody. Could we do it to China? Absolutely. Will we know? Because we're financially dependent on them like they are on us in world trade, whereas Russia, not so close. So China, like right now, like we could, we probably would do sanctions like that and have to some degree to do them that severely. It would take a lot, but we, we could, but we could do it to anybody, even allied nations. This could lead to things, and arguably, some people argue has led to some things that have already happened. For example, I said, United dollar's not the world reserve currency anymore, not the only one anyway. Pound sterling is, the yuan and the yen, and there's one or two others. There's like five or six now. Or if you think about the BRICS system, they aren't doing that because they want to join or burn the United States and destroy it. Part of that's protection, and some of those are allied nations of ours. You know, that's part of the reasoning. If you look at China, one of the things I talked about in COVID was when, right before the economy went down, one of the things that happened, all the ports but one, nine out of 10 ports or something, China shut down. They had to because of, because of COVID, the virus, the transmission, nobody knows what's going on. It's getting really bad. We've now reached pandemic. We've been in pandemic for a few days. It's all happening very fast. The main reason world economies failed everywhere had nothing to do with those leaders and you know, part of its panic and stuff, but world trade stopped because those ports shut down because one of the things China had done for years and years was made them the central hub where almost everything went through, which made them a lot of money and gave them a lot of power, but 
we saw it was a single point of failure, so we've done everything we can to cut that back. Guess what we've learned in the financial system? There is a massive single point of failure that one nation can control in many aspects that can destroy people, and nobody wants that held over their head. They don't want to even know that possibly could happen to them, so what are they going to do? They're going to find ways to make that not something that could happen to them, right? Because none of our allies agree with everything we do. What happens if India doesn't agree with something we do and we decide to punish them? Now, maybe you don't think our president will do that, but we don't know what the world's going to be like in 10 or 20 years. If, if you look at this president and the last one and some of the things they say and the ways they behave and decisions they make, and I'm not talking about you disagree with them politically, I'm talking about just the nature of how President Trump talks about people or talks on Twitter when he, when he was on there. Or, or just the nature and some of the some of the things that really make you question the current president's mental state. Like even 20, 25 years ago, they probably never would have got into office. Nobody would have tolerated that stuff. So who knows what we're going to be looking at in 20 years. Other countries think like this. They think well beyond that. So if your financial system is a threat to you, you need to get people on board, find a new way around it. I'm not saying some of these countries don't want to be, especially China wants to become the economic superpower. But that might be why some of these things have happened and especially speeding up rapidly now because when we do these things to a country like Russia, people are like, oh shit, if you can do it to Russia, and here's the thing, everybody's realizing they're not the superpower, the military power we thought, but they know what their economy looks like and what they're capable of, who they trade with and all that other stuff and we weren't afraid of it. Not even realizing that despite everything that's going on, we've actually, by those decisions of sanctioned, arguably, were the biggest risk to the safety and security of members of NATO and the European Union because of the things they would lose from Russia because we did those sanctions. Those sanctions that took a long time to kick in and people are starting to see the effects of several months ago, those were pretty serious. So I guess I should add on to say if we roll in that Eric Sides in Finland into the Finland escalation, that would make Finland into NATO actually the third S. The second escalation is really those sanctions because of how the world's reacting to them. Because I believe, and many people do, that when you break down the details, things like BRICS and some of this other stuff, and whether they're going to come or not, are happening now because of those sanctions and what we've done to Russia. Okay, I'm not saying any justified. I'm just saying cause and effect or causality. Probably causality that that really was the second escalation. First would be the massive invasion, second being sanctions, third will be Finland into NATO. Two to one, we've out-escalated Russia. So who's going to play ball next? It's hard to say. But most of the time, this is why I say Russians reacted to us. So yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redo the escalation thing. Definitely the sanctions because of the world involvement and how they reacted. The air show, we'll just call that part of Finland. That'll make sense when I cover Finland in that podcast. So now, despite what you think you know, which a lot of what you probably know about nukes is accurate, just not probably to tactical. This is for most people, you as an individual, you might already know. But your typical tactical nuclear weapon is small, kiloton range. So kiloton is smaller than megaton, even though we think it's the other way. You know, we think megaton, meter, kiloton, kilometer. It's the exact opposite. They're typically in the one to 30 kiloton range. I think those iskanders are somewhere around the middle of that. I do not remember off the top of my head. So when these are used, when they're launched and used, they're pretty devastating within about a kilometer, maybe a two. So about a mile to any people that are there. And they can, closer area destructive to buildings. 
they're more powerful than our hydrogen bombs that we used in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, sure. But it's not that significant of an increase compared to what a megaton, multi-megaton ICBM can use. Now, as far as the radioactive fallout, which is a big deal, not only for the health of people, but what it does to the environment, aside from the initial blast, really depends on the height of which it happens. And more than likely, because of other types of weapons we have, they probably would be detonated height to get kind of a larger area to get that mile, mile and a half area, especially for the burst radius of the radioactive fallout when you want that effect of the weapon. Because when you don't want that effect and you're going to launch it lower, some of those similar effects can be had by other weapons or one or two, you know, two, three of the other weapons compared to using the one nuke. So typically when you use nukes, even tactical, there's a reason you want to use it, some sort of emergency, something to really change the tide of war, something like that. You're not concerned about the fallout. It's not a threat to you. Because of some where those areas are even now, because a lot of it's in eastern Ukraine, and they have to consider about, um, you know, anything close to Crimea, anything close to the southern port areas of Ukraine, if Russia wants to keep those areas in the war and are still fighting for them, and of course the Donbass, then they have to think about the radioactive fallout going beyond that blast radius area and what it's going to do to people. The other thing is, the escalation implications of this are mostly political. It's just the idea, the reactions people say of using nukes is why politically it'd be huge. This is why, even though like the president knows, may not remember, but he knows those nukes were getting moved and was announced a year ago. And then he said, Hey, it's irresponsible. We're starting to see escalation conversation. That's all we're seeing now. But imagine the things that would be said by nations around the world. If somebody actually locked one, even if it was small, sure. Some people come out. It's only tactical, but, it would be a huge escalation. Here's the thing. Like I said about what they'll really do and how you would use them, they're generally militarily ineffective in Ukraine for a lot of the areas where they would likely be used just because it doesn't gain you much of an advantage. It hurts you more than it helps you. The other thing too is for some time now, I would argue that the only real credible deterrent Russia has against the West in any capacity because militarily, other than nukes, we've seen where we're at now with that, the economy, all these other things, all they're really left with are nukes. And if you spend that card and it's not that effective, game over. People can choose just to react to you. Not to mention, if you use that one single nuke, that's what gets people into the war. For all we know, there's people on standby right now who are about to be on standby. They're just going to sit there and rotate out for day and day and day and day. And then they finally launch a nuke. What happens? We go in and invade. Not saying that can happen, but not saying it would happen, but it's more than likely there would be military action by other nations. That only escalates that loose situation, escalates the loose situation. The other thing too is depending on how you're trying to use it, more than likely you wouldn't get the desired effect of that in the war. And all it does is damage that that last bit of credibility you have, that last strategic card. You can't just say I have them anymore because we know you're going to use them, and that's the problem. You're like, well, yeah, but they got bigger ones. Yes, but see, you use the small one. So everybody's going to assume you're crazy enough to use the big one. They don't want that to happen. Because once you did the little thing, why not do the big thing? The other thing, too, is I think they already did do some testing of some type. But if not, some of the things they would do just to show the deterrent, credibility, capability, the threat of nuclear weapons would be just testing, especially testing near any border country that they don't like or closer to Ukraine as long as it's not going to endanger them or Belarus or Donbass or any of that area. Mostly this is done for like fear. 
fear and a show of force. It's the same idea as the air shows, as I call them, that's going to be happening in in uh, Finland and in uh, Europe later in the summer. But the understanding what these weapons can really do kind of puts into perspective to realize a lot of the fear we have is from things we don't even understand or think are from the bigger weapons that aren't even in play right now. And I question of being in play right now. So if you figure that the... Um, I had it written down. There it is. So, like I said, 1 to 30 kilotons. So, I'm not sure what the Iskander is. I said it was about 15. What I had written down was Nagasaki and Hiroshima are about a 15 kiloton. So, you know, they're by definition not nuclear weapons. You can go look at pictures. You can read about the effects that it had and what it did. That was in the 15 kiloton range. Now, I don't know if a modern nuclear weapon that is also 15 kiloton is works out to be more effective. I would argue it probably does. We haven't seen one launched, but we're looking at missiles in the same range of what Nagasaki and Hiroshima did. Now, granted, that argument shows what it could do to an entire nation. The difference is nobody had them back then. It was just us, and we used them. So what happens if somebody else chooses to go that route before? The other thing, too, is we have this idea like they might only use one missile. More than likely, if they were to use tactical, they would say use more than one. Use them very quickly over a wide area or more likely just a few of them in a small area to make some sort of change. Assuming they weren't doing it on the, we're going to lose everything, just start launching things. And, and the concern really is of the president saying, fuck it, we're going to launch everything. You know, probably wouldn't be tactical nukes. We'd probably be something bigger where he wants to take out an entire country. Now, the thing about tactical nukes, though, well, I mentioned the fallout and the fallout radius would be bigger than the blast zone. That's not really been modeled. Most of the studies and modeling that's done, whether it's in a vacuum or in a certain place in the world, is done based on the weapons most likely used for international conflict over great distances, being your ICBM type or size, much larger megaton weapons. Not a lot's been done on the tactical side. And then, again, it's just, weather prevailing winds is a big thing especially with fallout and when it's unreliable you don't know where it's going to go and you can't forecast it's going to have that effect on them and then it's not going to have an effect of you the other thing too is so to really get the effect because of things like that you would have to use a lot of them like a handful anyway and that's the thing is so a nuclear weapon would escalate the situation we've already discussed why that's bad but every one you use after that or in conjunction every one like compounds it probably exponentially on how the world would react. Not necessarily its effect on the environment of the war, but how the world would react to it. And I think the most important thing to point out on why I don't think they'll use nukes, most likely China would back off and have nothing to do with them. Because remember I said, they're not that kind of friends. China's not behind shit uh, anymore. And it should be obvious now, but anymore for some time now china is the real superpower threat compared to russia but that should be clear now after this war and what they're really capable of doing and not doing but the problem is if they alienate china because china's china's the one playing chess not russia they're playing the long game they've been doing stuff around the world forever russia's been focused on russia like most countries china's been smart taking total advantage especially against the united states during a war on terror which i previously talked about so if you alienate china that's huge because that's they're financially dependent on them, and that's huge. I mean, we have, everybody has a lot of trading partners, but people are just willing to give you money. Russia doesn't have a lot of those partners willing to give them money that are sitting on a lot of money that are willing to do it, especially after these things they've been doing already, and especially if they use a bomb like that. 
whereas we don't have that big of a concern. I mean, obviously, it'd probably play out the same for us. We use a nuke, but countries, a lot of countries just don't have the concern, and they, they would be hurting financially. So this is why I said at the beginning, it would take a lot that I'm not even sure how to describe to get Russia or Vladimir Putin to say, screw it, I'm just going to launch something because I'm going out with a bang. But it would take probably him seeing, not him losing power, I would guess him losing everything, the country losing everything, everything just going to shit. Like literally everything for him to do it because using the nuke more than likely would guarantee it. And that doesn't mean that all these things I'm saying would play out anywhere else. I mean, the biggest thing is just the effect of the weapon, the type you're using based on terrain, preventing wounds and all this stuff. Depends on where you're at in the world. This is also another reason why I said I think it's more likely if there was to be used, somebody would walk one in somewhere else where it would have a desired effect. Or its desired effect would be the impact of the fact we're willing to do it, but you can't prove it, but we actually didn't hurt anybody, but you need to think twice type thing. You know, basically find a piece of land on NATO ground where we can detonate one and not get found, but turn it into these same ideas if it was a testing area and nobody really got hurt except for some ground squirrels. Like, yeah, we know, but we can't prove and nobody really got hurt anyway, then what do you do? That's a similar idea to just testing it on the border. It's just an escalated effect if you do it on NATO land. That's why I don't think testing one near the border, I think that's to be expected. Just like the air shows to be expected, troop movements are to be expected. These things are expected. I don't think they're escalations. But if it happens on NATO soil, absolutely. So I hope that at least inspires you to look some things up definitely look up that Poseidon thing I'll be talking about in the next show, not the very next show, but the next show that I do on this subject, which a lot of this comes from questions and playing catch up, obviously. We'll go into that detail about Ukraine. A thousand years, going back about a thousand years to start it out. What has really developed and happened there between them and Russia and transpired and bringing Finland in, especially during uh, about 67 years ago and how that plays into now and why that's an escalation that they're in NATO, which will tie a little bit into the nuclear aspect at least as far as deployment capabilities and where things are located. I think that will make a lot more sense to you, and you might start looking a little more objective at this and going, you know what? No matter how hard I try, a lot of things out there are giving me input, trying to get me to lean a certain way because I'm pro, say, pro-America, anti-Russia in this war. I'm pro-Russia, anti-America, or pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia, or pro-Russia, anti-Ukraine, whichever way you want to look at it. And uh, get you to look some things up, realize in this game... Nobody's really a good guy. And everybody's doing something bad to somebody. We're just justifying it. Russia's justifying what they're doing. We're justifying what we're doing to Russia. And just realizing that one thing I've always said, and I've said on here, wars are fought for only two reasons, lands and people. And when we say it's one, it's probably the other. So then the question is this. Did Russia say they're really fighting for land or are they fighting for people? And why is it the other one? And don't forget Ukraine. What did Ukraine say? Don't forget to check if you're a Spotify listener for any poll or question I put in. And if you listen on another platform, you can still jump over to Spotify and answer them or you can at least see them and send me an email with the answers if you want. Hopefully I can turn those into more shows too. We got more stuff coming up. Got a few other things. Dabble more into some more gray man type fun stuff that people enjoy. Don't forget to share this with your friends or any platform you'd like this show. Please give us a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, as that tends to get distributed to many platforms. Have reviews or from Apple Podcasts. That helps us out. Let's people know why you did or didn't like the show, why you gave it the star rating you did, and what you like about it. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll be back again shortly with more information right here on the Gray Man Concept for Gray Men Hiding in Plain Sight.